All right, I have been talking about it for weeks. My new book that's coming out, and a lot of you reached out. I offered to send it to you in a digital format, like kind of the not quite final version, the needs a few edits still version. I sent it out to you guys to take a look at, like an advanced copy, and tons of you reached out and asked for that. And for that support, I really, really thank you. But the day has finally come. My book, Level Jumping, is available right now on Amazon. So if you've got that advanced digital copy and you want to get your hands on an actual physical copy, then you can go to Amazon to get that right now. If you didn't get that advanced copy, no worries. It's there for you now on Amazon. Guys, I am so excited about this. I can't even tell you. And if you would go and grab yourself a copy and give me a rating and review on Amazon, it would mean the world. I'm really excited about it. And as you guys know, because I've been talking about it for a while, my book is all about how I scaled my business from uh, doing a couple of deals a month in real estate to well over 10, 12, 15 deals a month. I get asked all the time how I was able to scale up like that. And I have been helping people for years scale their business. Well, I figured it was time to put it in a book and that's exactly what I've done. So please go to Amazon right now. Check it out. Look for level jumping. I would be so grateful if you did. And if you give me a rating and review on Amazon for that book, I would really appreciate that also. All right, guys, just wanted to give you that huge announcement. Big news for me. All right, let's dive into the show now. And I realized very quickly that I was out of money and that, you know, that $250 a month that I was making surely <laughs> yeah. was going to take a long time before I could ever buy that next property. Yeah. And so yeah. um, my model uh, shifted very quickly to basically either purchase rehab and, and flip or wholesale, you know, two, three or four properties and then try to keep one and then kind of just rinse and repeat over and over again. And that's what I had to do for a number of years. You're listening to the Just Start Real Estate Podcast. If you're serious about your real estate investing business and need real answers, you are in the right place. And now, your host, Mike Simmons. Hey guys, thank you for joining me on Just Start Real Estate. Thank you for choosing this program to spend the next hour or so. I appreciate it. I really do. Uh, I, I put these together in the hopes that they're valuable and interesting and insightful and inspiring and informative and all those all those things that, that us podcasters try to do. And I put my heart and soul into it. And when you guys show up and listen to it, it just means a lot. It means that I'm doing something right. So thank you for that. If you're new to the show, welcome. I hope I blow your mind. Uh, but if I don't, come back for the next show and I will blow your mind. No, just kidding. This will blow your mind, guys. This is a, a pretty cool interview that I just did with a guy named Kevin Bupp. And it's it, it involves a type of real estate investing that uh, I have not had a lot of experience in. Frankly, I've had no experience in. So I always love talking to people who are doing something a little different than what I know because I get a chance to sit back and be just like you guys and sit in that seat where I'm learning. And that was a lot of fun today when I talked to him. So Kevin Bopp is the founder and CEO of Sunrise Capital Investors, which invests in mobile home parks parking lots, apartments, offices, and single-family homes all across the U.S. He has 16 years of experience in educating investors to locate, acquire, and create higher-than-average returns from the widely misunderstood niche of mobile home park investing. He shares his expertise through his uh, Mobile Home Academy 
and also is the host of the Real Estate Investing for Cashflow, uh, as well as his other podcast is called the Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast. Um, and uh, he's become one of the hottest guys on iTunes. He's he's a big deal. And it was a lot of fun having him on the show. I, I was able to learn quite a bit about what he does. And he was very, very forthcoming with uh, with his expertise in buying mobile home parks, like which, like I said, is, is something I have no experience in. But it turns out some of the mechanics and some of the skill sets are very similar to single family investing uh, or commercial investing for sure, multifamily type stuff. So very cool interview with a cool guy. And without any further delay, I give you Kevin Bupp. Hey, Kevin, thanks for being on the show, man. I really appreciate you doing this. Thanks for having me here, Mike. Looking forward to it. Absolutely, absolutely. So this is going to be fun because, A, you're a podcaster, so you get what we're trying to do here, which is always a fun thing when I talk to other podcasters. And also, your mic, is, your mic setup is fantastic, so I love that. Um, <laughs> and, you've, and we talked a little bit before we jumped on here. You've, you've had quite a diverse background. You've done a lot of different things. Uh, but among them is uh, mobile home park investing, which I think is very, very interesting. And we can touch on some of the other stuff, but uh, that's really going to be something I, I want to focus on because I've always heard about it. I heard it's a great investment. Uh, I've never personally done it, but I would love to hear how that works, why you gravitate toward that, uh, mm-hmm. as opposed to maybe some... And I, and I know you invest in other things, but why is mobile home park investing so important or so smart for people? And we'll get into all that. But before we do that, let's dive into uh, a little bit more of your beginnings. I know you started young, uh, mm-hmm. so let's dial it back a little bit and talk about maybe pre-real uh, estate, pre-investing. Uh, you were a kid, I think, but what what got you into it? I mean, did you start this when you were living at home with the parents? Like, how did that work? No, uh, right around that period of time. So um, I always like to say that real estate kind of found me. You know, I, I I didn't find it, and so I'm very blessed and grateful for for that coming into my life because I, I don't know what I'd be doing now uh, if it wasn't for that. You know, again finding me you know, about 20, 21 years ago, and so you know, I grew up in a very blue collar family, and you know we we never went without. Uh, we had you know everything we needed is all relative, right? I mean, yeah. I, I didn't we didn't, we weren't poor and we weren't rich. And, uh, again, we had fun and went on one family vacation a year and things were good. However, we didn't have a lot of, my parents didn't have a lot of discretionary money or income for, you know, the cool toys and, you know, all that kind of fun stuff. And so at an early age, I did whatever I could. Originally it was chores around the house, like washing my parents' cars and mowing the grass and taking the dog out and clean up dog poop, whatever I could yeah, do to make yeah, money. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and my first, uh, you know, the first opportunity when I could actually make a real paycheck was a paper out. You know, back in the day, they, you know, kids delivered papers to homes. And uh, my, the, the kid that had our paper out was about to go away to college. He kept it all the way through high school. And uh, I fought for that job. And it was a big route. And I, I landed it at the age of 12 and, and started making some real money and making some real paychecks so I could buy the things I wanted. And it just really got a good taste of, of, of that freedom. You know, like yeah. an allowance is one thing, but actually making a paycheck back then, it was like $40 a week, which was a lot of money. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's like 30 some odd years ago. Yeah. And uh, and so anyway, it just uh, gave me a taste of uh, kind of paving my own way and started installing electronics in my friend, my brother's friend's cars, stereo systems, things like that. And leading all the way up to, you know, through high school, uh, I just w- did whatever I could to hustle and make a dollar. Right. I, I wouldn't call myself an entrepreneur. I just wanted to make money because I wouldn't be able to buy the things I wanted. Right. Sure. I don't know if that's entrepreneurism or not. But anyway, that, that's what I did. And, you know, a lot of my friends went away to school. I didn't. Uh, I was I wasn't wasn't academically gifted, I guess is the best way to put it. I just, I didn't, enjoy, I didn't enjoy <laughs> yeah. school all yeah. that much. And so I didn't do well, right? I, I, I just got by. I literally showed up. I did the minimum. 
um, Dude, that's, which that's, is not my personality today. Yeah. But I did the God, that's, and, that's funny you say that. I, I, I don't hear a lot of people admit that, but I can tell you <laughs> I'm exactly the same. I, I, I did not excel academically. I did enough to get by. And I agree with you. If I feel like if I was in school now, I would be driven to get like straight yes. A's. You know what I mean? Me like too. I have that, but I didn't back then. It's crazy. Yeah. Now, and everyone's got a different learning style. And, uh, you know, so basically what, again, coming not from an affluent background, I surely didn't have any scholarships lined up for me. And so yeah. I, I, I was, I didn't want to go away to school because I was afraid of like basically wasting my parents money. That's kind of how I felt. I felt as though if I went away, I knew my personality and I would have just partied the first year and I would have probably yeah. plunked out. Right. And, yeah. and wasted 20 or $30,000. And so I went away to community college. Well, I went to community college, didn't go away to community college, but there's a local community college in, in the town I grew up in. Yep. And, um, it just, did you know took classes right i mean just i didn't really have a guy any guidance and during that time i started dating a girl and uh that girl her mother had recently been divorced and she started she was dating a guy by the name of david david was a local real estate investor and um you know through through the you know interactions of being you know over at her house or her mom's house visiting her um i got to know david and i got to know him quite well and um he was a, lived a very different lifestyle what i knew growing up and so uh, we just, uh, you know, we grew a friendship. He was about 25 years older than I, but, you know, just he's a really nice guy, very personable. And, um, you know, about three months into us kind of hanging out, you know, just, you know, getting to know each other, he invited me to a, a boot camp, a three day training down in Philadelphia uh, on how to fix and flip homes and wholesale homes. Right. And um, I didn't know anything about it. I literally knew nothing about what he did. I didn't understand it. Um, but I was like, Hey, this guy literally is inviting me to something that cost him a few thousand dollars and he lives a pretty cool lifestyle. I should probably go. Yeah. And, and I did, I attended. And, and after I went, I, I was, I was overwhelmed. I was excited, had all these emotions. And the one thing that I pulled away from was I met a lot of people that I didn't feel were any smarter than I, that were doing big things in the yeah. real estate space. And so I said to you, I said to David, Hey, I want to know what you do. I kind of have a little taste of it, but I'm, I have no idea where to start. I'd love yeah. to, can I help you in your business? Can I help you grow your business? What can I do? Like, where do you need help and what you're doing on a day to day? And how can I help plug those holes? And so yeah. essentially for about a year, I, in between tending bar in the evenings and going to classes during the day, I was with David. I was at his office. I was out in the field. I was basically his admin assistant. I was his coffee getter. I was whatever he needed at that point. So I could learn the business. And, um, Ultimately, bought my first property at the age of twenty, and uh, you know, been doing it ever since full time. I never really ever got a real job other than tending bar, and uh, been a full time real estate investor ever since that day. Yeah, that you know, you brought up something super important, something I talk about all the time. But I'm sure you get this: people reaching out to you via email or or social media saying, "Hey, can you do this for me? Can you tell me this? Can yeah. you give me this?" And they, they, everyone reaches out, and they're they're immediately asking for something. And mm -hmm. when you're reaching out to somebody who maybe has information that's worth getting, chances are other people are doing that and the fastest way to get ignored or to not get what you want is to immediately start asking for something and, yeah. and giving nothing in return so you going to them and saying and i i'm just extrapolating that you did this for free i don't know if you were getting paid but to, no, it was free right okay that's what i figured and and so just to go to someone and say i want to just work i want to do things for you i want to make your life easier tell me where i can fit in and i'm sure when you were there you were looking for areas where you could be helpful and just doing that for free and being around it like learning by by first giving and then you'll you re, you received just by being there for sure you learned uh things that were going on in his business uh but people are way more willing to help you and and spend their time which yeah. for a guy like that I'm I'm going to say his time probably meant a lot to him mm -hmm. um and to he'll give you that person will give you their time if you're just willing to give them something or at least be of service to them first and I think it's overlooked in this like you know super like 
instant gratification society. Um, and not to sound like, you know, old man here, but listen, sometimes you just have to put yourself out there and, and do something without expecting anything in return right away. And that's that's the best way to get into yeah. uh, an industry that you're interested in. So you mentioned Philadelphia, this this three-day thing. Is that where you were living? I didn't ask you where you grew up. Uh, Harrisburg, So, you know, which is the capital. It's about two hours away okay. from uh, from Philadelphia. Okay, yeah, cool. Yeah. Okay. So Harrisburg, it's a small small town, though. Philadelphia is the, you know, Philadelphia and Pittsburgh are like the major cities in Pennsylvania. Yeah. Um, so you did your first deal. What, what what did that look like? Was it a success? How did it go? It, it was, um, you know, so David's business model was to basically, you know, uh, purchase a rehab and then hold for long-term cash flow. Like he was at a very different, I didn't understand it in the beginning. He was at a very different level in his business, right? He had capital, he had a, you know, he had a war chest of capital that he was working with to buy properties. And so yep. uh, getting into it, I wanted to follow his model. I didn't want to reinvent the wheel, but I very quickly realized that I bought that first property, used $70,000 I had uh, saved up from tending bar and, and, and also utilized one of the relationships I had built through David, which was one of his private money investors and bought a really rundown, dumpy home in a really bad part of town in inner city Harrisburg with the intent of fixing it up and renting it. I did fix it up. I did rent it. And I realized very quickly that I was out of money and that, you know, that $250 a month that I was making surely <laughs> yeah. was going to take a long time before I could ever buy that next property. Yeah. And so yeah. um, my model uh, shifted very quickly to basically either purchase rehab and, and flip or wholesale, you know, two, three or four properties and then try to keep one and then kind of just rinse and repeat over and over again. And that's what I had to do for a number of years before I actually, number one, um, you know, started building some, you know, sustainable cash flow, a cash flow that could actually do something that could support any type of lifestyle. And, and so I did that for many, many years before I could truly start focusing on really just uh, buying with the intent of holding. Again, we, we, we will always, even today, we still sell things, but we yeah. really always focus on buying things that actually cash flow from day one that we can also prove upon and that are sustainable assets and sustainable investments. So what do you look for in an investment? Something you're planning on holding, yeah. like what, what are the big, the big markers, things that you must have or want to have when you do that? Yeah, I mean, you know, markets everything to us, so it's got to be in a phenomenal market, right? It's got to have sound economic fundamentals. It's got to have, you know, diverse employment base. Can't be an area that people are trying to move out of. Uh, you know, for example, like we actually own some properties in, in New York State, up in the Buffalo area, and uh, Buffalo's seen a huge resurgence over the past probably two decades. However, New York as a whole is completely going down the uh, uh, the tube. I mean, people are, are, are moving away from New York faster than than you and I can count one to ten, right? It's just <laughs> yeah. it's happening so quickly, and so and also the politics there are changing very quickly, and so. Not only do we want good, sound fund, uh, uh, economics, but we also want to know that the uh, the policies, you know, related to landlord tenant laws, what have you, are friendly or at least yeah. a win win, right? They're fair. Yeah. And yeah. New York, um, just this past year, you know, they passed. It's the second state to pass statewide rent control, right? That is, it's it's a horrific. It's been a horrible yeah. experience, and so. So, so the market is really the first indicator. And then once once we're comfortable with the market, really it's the deal itself, right? We and everyone's got different financial targets that they want to hit. You know, sure. we have investors in our deals, and and so for us, it's it's really built around uh, a long term hold, but uh, but also built around a, a certain return that we're looking to achieve. You know, not necessarily just the first year, but also you know year one, year three, five, sure. seven, ten throughout the life of that investment. How important is appreciation to you and in your investments, your long term? Yeah, it, it's. 
I mean, it's us, it's icing on the cake, you know, the commercial is a little bit different than residential, right? Sure. Residential, it's, it, you know, that doesn't necessarily, uh, a forced appreciation doesn't necessarily exist, right? It's more yep. of a comparative sales approach. And so you don't have too much control over that in residential, whereas commercial you do. However, yeah. you, you don't have control over cap rates, right? And so cap rates are the one fluctuation that ultimately can kill some of that forced appreciation. So if you just added a million dollars of value to a property and that was based on a seven cap and now COVID-19 pandemic happened and uh, the market gets shooken up a little bit. Now that's trading at an eight cap. Well, guess what? Majority of that or a portion of that went away, that, yeah. that forced appreciation went away. And so to us, it's all about the actual cash flow. And I, I use the word sustainable. And so can that property, uh, you know, we have like a stress test. We run our properties through before we acquire them. We try to figure out where the cliff is and forget about the appreciation side of it. But you know, where, where is the cliff to where, you know, if we lose X amount of occupancy, right? If, if yeah. you know, at year five, if depending on the type of debt we have, at year five, we have to do a refinance. If the rates go up 100 basis points to 200 basis points, like where is the worst case scenario with multiple different variables that get thrown your way over a period of time of holding an investment? Um, and, and we need to know that we're comfortable with, uh, with kind of the worst case scenario. And, and we're, fairly, we're fairly conservative. So we probably pass on a lot of deals that others would would you know scoop up in a minute so yeah that's smart about, I mean, you, you mentioned you have investors the the deal yeah you have investors that you have to you have to answer to a little bit Absolutely. in terms of what you're doing with their money um so that makes tons of sense now you, you mentioned uh that you invested you look at different economic factors and and the mm-hmm. rent laws and things like that so am i to assume that you you're buying all over the place you're not just picking a county and a town and that's where you go you're you're diverse in terms of ge- that, geography yeah you know just be, being in the mobile home park space uh, you know there's only so many, so many mobile home parks in the U.S. And it's one of those uh, niches that if you want to scale a business, you've got to be open to going to where the deals are. Um, yep. You know, we don't really have the luxury of saying, well, I just want to invest in, you know, I'm, I'm based in the Tampa Bay area. I just only want to buy in the Tampa Bay area. I could, and I might end up with one or two properties or maybe three or four, you know, but it would be a very slow go. And so as far as like building a large business and having multiple properties, uh, we had to be open-minded to going outside of our immediate marketplace. So today we own uh, properties in, in 13 different states. So we're fairly spread out. We're in the Southeast, Northeast, and also a couple states in the Midwest. Okay. And just to be clear, and I, I this is a good segue because I do want to talk about the mobile home thing quite a bit. I think that's it's fascinating. Uh, just to be clear, and, I, and then maybe this is a dumb question, but if I'm just trying to imagine the guy in his car and you know, driving, listening to this and what, what they might be asking, when you say mobile home investing, you are not investing in individual mobile homes. You're investing in entire parks. You're buying. That's correct. Park. Okay. Okay. Yeah. We own the entire community. Now I will, I will add a, uh, you know, one unique caveat there. So we, we buy the entire community uh, and typically, you know, the residents own their homes and they basically rent a lot from yep. us, right? And so yep. we're just renting land. However, um, you know, part of this business that's kind of changed over the last couple of decades is, uh, you know, people tend people pass away, they age and they pass away, or people have to move out of state and they can't take their mobile home with them. Although they're mobile, they're expensive to move. And so sure. what happens a lot of times is whether you like it or not, being a mobile home park operator, you end up acquiring some of these mobile homes, you end up owning them. And so your decision at that point being the owner is either to fix it up and sell it and try to get a tenant you know, that's going to buy it outright and just rent the land. Yeah. Or some investors prefer to you know turn them into rentals and, yeah. and have them go operate 
as though an apartment would. But so. you don't want that personally. You're not looking to rent individual. That's not our choice. Yeah, yeah. So we have a, we own about just shy of 2,000 lots, and uh, about 12% of our portfolio is made up of units that we own. And so it's it's always a number that's fluctuating. You know, we just sold, I think, like six yesterday. Okay. However, this morning, I found out that we just acquired one, right? I mean, like, it literally, it's like this. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, we're trying to chase it down, but it just, you, you, gotta, you have to be comfortable with that side of the business. We try to keep it that number as low as possible. We have some communities where we own zero homes and that that is a perfect world for us. Yeah. Then we have other communities where we own, you know, 30 homes. Okay. So, okay. What is, what's the average size of a, of a park? How many units are we talking about? How many lots are we talking about generally speaking? Yeah, well, the technical definition is anything more than, you know, uh, you know, two mobile homes on one given parcel, right? That could be a mobile home park. However, okay. you know, as far as, um, you know, our business is concerned and, and and it's kind of evolved over time, right? When we got started, we were open to buying smaller communities, you know, 30 and 40 space communities. In fact, the very first community that we purchased in Atlanta, it's a 30, 34 space community. We still own it today, but we probably wouldn't buy that same community again today. Just, it's not a scalable model buying, you know, the smaller properties. Um, and so today our minimum size that we look for, you know, in our business is anywhere between 80 and 100 lots in size. Okay. And so our portfolio today, we own 19 properties. We're just shy of 2,000 lots. And so we've got some that are larger than 100, some that are smaller than 100. So but right around the okay. 100 average. Okay. So, and you're a good person to talk to you about this because you have invested in single family homes, in, yes. in commercial, like you've done a lot of uh, buy and hold style uh, investing. So the big question is why mobile home parks? Why not just stick with commercial and residential to the traditional stuff that people do? Yeah, no, that, that's a great question. And, and yes, I, I was very heavily involved in single family. I mean, I ended up building up a fairly substantial portfolio of about 120 rentals and, and also had owned uh, about 500 multifamily doors. This is like pre-2008, pre-crash. Okay. That was kind of my first run. That's what I always call it my first phase in real estate. Yeah. Um, ultimately, getting back into real estate, I took a couple year hiatus after 2008 happened. It was a, just a horrific time. Lost a lot of my, pretty much my entire business went you know under. Yeah. Um, and I went on a, a kind of a journey of, you know, what went wrong? What don't I want to do again? And how can I rebuild? And it took me a couple of years to really figure that out. And during that journey, uh, I thought I wanted to do multifamily. I saw that as a way to scale, uh, you know, to, to get back to where I was, but even grow much larger. I just saw much more efficiencies in the multifamily business. Yeah. Again, I own both. And so I, I could kind of compare the two. And um, during that journey, I was introduced to a guy by the name of Randy. Um, uh, he was a, a friend of mine, you know, introduced us and Randy happened to own a couple of mobile home parks in Florida here. And he was a retired banker, had been in banking for 30 years. And I, I wasn't meeting with him because I had an interest in what he was doing. I just, I like meeting new people. And, um, and so I had a, a lunch with Randy and during that meeting, he basically uh, uh, told me what he did, you know, piqued my interest many different ways of why he loved mobile home parks so much. And he had been financing them for a number of years prior to retiring and, you know, buying investments himself. And um, it piqued my interest enough to where I, I needed to dig a little deeper. And I kind of left that meeting saying that I was going to take the next 12 months to learn and also buy my first community, which we ultimately did. And um, some of the things that really piqued my interest were, you know, mobile home parks are the they're the only asset class that has a diminishing supply. So there's, you know, there's less new supply coming on the market than what actually gets shut down or redeveloped each and every year. And so that creates a massive supply demand imbalance. And, uh, you know, which also creates a massive barrier to entry as well. Why, why so is I, that? Why, why do you think that is? Why are there yeah, less coming that's, out? That's a, Really two different reasons. I mean, mobile home parks have had a bad rep. You know, the folks that are listening that um, maybe never grew up in a mobile home park and maybe don't own one. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is like trailer trash, right? Like the, uh, what, what's the, what, what's the, uh, the, the TV show that was on many years back, the, the trailer park boys or whatever. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like it's just, yeah. 
like that's what comes to mind. Yep. And that's not that's not it at all. And I think that there's a number there was a number and there still are a number of bad actors in our space, just like there are in any single family and multifamily or commercial space, right? There's slum lords and then there's people that do it right. Yeah. And we got kind of lumped all into the one category of those that run their properties wrong and, and create the wrong elements inside a community. And so a lot of municipalities were very, they frowned upon mobile home parks. And so it's very, very challenging to get approval for a new community to be built. And so it's partially due to the negative stigma, but also think about it for a second. So mobile home parks basically take up a large horizontal piece of area, right? Mm -hmm. Piece of land, land mass. And if you're looking to build a mobile home park in an area that's already in the path of progress, right? Let's talk about like inside city limits or, um, you're not out in the rural location, right? Like close to the, you know, amenities and actions of any given town or city. Yep. There's probably many other better uses from a tax basis um, for that area to approve. You know, multifamily apartment complex, you're going to have a higher demographic that lives there. They're going to spend more money. They're going to make more money, right? Yeah. There, there's lots of other reasons why municipalities would not approve a mobile home park, would approve many other types of uses. And so it's just a, it's like running up against a brick wall. Uh, the only parks that typically get built nowadays that you see coming online are either they're very rural, like they're out in the middle of Louisiana or like, I mean, they're in the middle of nowhere where literally that county probably doesn't have any kind of like zoning code or anything. I mean, they're yeah. just like, okay, build whatever. It doesn't <laughs> exactly. really matter. Exactly. Uh, or, or they're very high end communities or what we call lifestyle communities. And these aren't, these are not affordable housing. These are, you know, people that live up in the Northeast that are looking for a, a summer place, a second home in, you know, Arizona or Florida or anywhere in the Sun Belt, right? These, yeah. these places are expensive. They've got three swimming pools, club directors, what have you, right? Very yeah. different situation than the type of communities that we own. And so those are some of the big reasons why you're just not seeing them get built. And then also a lot of these parks were built, you know, 40, 50, 60 years ago. They were in areas that were probably the wrong side of town. They weren't, they were kind of like near the industrial part of town. We're like, no one wants to live anyway. So let's, yeah. let's let them build that there. It's cheap land. Yeah. Well, times change, right? You know, cities built around themselves and all of a sudden you find a lot of these parks are in the path of progress now, yeah. right? They're in prime locations. And so there's a lot of time a higher and better use. So developers will come in and knock these things down and build a multi-use commercial property, a multifamily property, what have you. Something different than a mobile home park. It's happened many different times. So was any part of your strategy to, and I, I maybe this is not even a, a smart question, but is there any part of your strategy where you're looking to buy a park that appears to be either eminently in the way of progress or you predict it will be in the way of progress mm -hmm. and therefore the land becomes more valuable. Yeah, we're not speculators. And so, I mean, yeah. the only way we would buy something like that is if we absolutely, if, if it worked as a mobile home park today. Yeah. Okay. I mean, to where we can make the numbers, you know, have, make sense as a mobile home park today to where a future redevelopment is just icing on the cake. Otherwise, you're just really playing the speculative, you know, covered land play game and which again, you know, certain things like this pandemic kind of play out, right? We always have these dips in, you sure. know, in his historical trends where um, demand goes down. I mean, just think about retail. I mean, I, gosh, there's a retail center being built right down the road from our house. And we drove past it last night. We took a little golf cart ride, drove past it. And I'm like, it's right in the midst of, of, of literally just came out of the ground. They've got the, um, the walls up and the windows. And I'm like, wonder what's going to happen to that thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like yeah. it's a small, it's only like 15,000 square feet, but you know, I don't like playing those speculative games. I know there's a big reward yeah. on the backside of playing that game for developers, yeah. um, but I don't have that big of a stomach. I'd rather buy, you know, buy something that is kind of tried and true yeah. and that I know that people need a roof over their head. They need an affordable roof over their head. Yeah. And if it works as a mobile home park and it just happens to be something else in the future, 
that works for me. I can play that game. Totally. I, you know, the speculation game became less exciting and sexy for me in 2008, 2009, <laughs> when everybody's hopes and dreams got shattered. Um, so if you were, and this is a unusual question, it's the, it's sort of the ele- elevator pitch game with a different twist. If you were in an elevator with someone at the ground level, you're going to go up to 10th level. And as soon as the door is closed, uh, someone said, hey, I'm, I'm thinking about getting into mobile home park uh, uh, investing. Do you have any advice for me? You know, you've got 10 levels of an elevator, like kind of that that short, <laughs> like short, quick, like what would be the number, couple, one or two things you tell somebody if they're going to do that? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's all about getting educated, right? That's first and foremost, and that's with any asset class. Like, you got to you got to learn the intricacies of that investment vehicle. Um, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly behind it. And uh, there's lots of free education out there now. So, uh, you know, mobile home parks. I actually host a weekly mobile home park podcast. Uh, uh, there's a couple other ones out there as well. There's lots of good free information. There's forums out there. So get educated. You know, go network. There's multiple Facebook groups now that are mobile home park specific. And so get get to know others that are in your space and surround yourselves with them. Also find out who's local in your, wherever you live, right? Who owns the parks near you? Are they, do they live locally as well? If so, go take them out to lunch, right? Yeah. You know, see, see if you can, you'll befriend them and, uh, and, and not just pick their brain, but, you know, build some value for them as well. And, um, and extract as much good quality information as you can so that you can make a educated investment decision. Again, whether it's mobile home parks or any other type of uh, investment vehicle. Okay. Is mobile home park investing for someone who's new to investing in general? Like, it's, let's say they've never bought a single family home. They've never flipped a house. They've never wholesaled. They, they want to get into investing and they want to start there. Is that a good place to start? I mean, you got to start somewhere, yeah. right? Uh, you know, um, uh, you know. I think that there's some other factors, you know, that that we can kind of add into that question as far as like, you know, how much capital you're working with. Do you have any capital partners that are looking to put money into a deal, or are you, are you simply working with like twenty thousand dollars? You need to make that work for you. If that's the case, then m- maybe a mobile home park wouldn't be the you know the the best fit for you. Maybe you should go flip a couple houses first, or use that twenty grand for marketing and wholesale some homes, build up some cash. And then, you know, look to reinvest that, you know, that pile of cash into something else, maybe a mobile mobile home park or a multifamily property, what have you. So, but I mean, if you have the capital and you have the mental fortitude and and you're excited about it and you, you've studied different types of assets, you've landed on mobile home parks and you think they will help you reach whatever that that personal goal or that financial goal of yours is, then absolutely go, go after it. So I, of, I don't think there's ever a right and wrong. Yeah. Okay. It's fair. I, what kind of capital should I have? If I, if I'm going to, okay, I'm going to do the work, I'm going to research, I'm going to get my education. What would you say? What's a, what's a reasonable amount of access to capital? You don't have to have it yourself, obviously, but what's, what's the access to capital that you should be, you should have? Yeah. Again, you know, if we're talking about like just standard, like, Hey, you're going to go get a bank loan and, you know, purchase a mobile home park, you know, the average size park that we buy end up selling for between like two and $4 million. And typically the, the downstroke, um, on the debt side is anywhere between, you know, 25 and 30%. And so, uh, I mean, that's a substantial amount of money. However, like I said, anything more larger than two, uh, two lots is a mobile home park. Uh, And so uh, there's many parks that are 10 and 15 spaces, 20 spaces. And a lot of times the smaller parks are much more accessible to a new investor. And the reason being is that number one, they typically are too small to qualify for any of the better high quality debt that's out there like Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac uh, debt that's out there. Uh, And a lot of local banks still don't fully understand this business. And uh, even then, 
a lot of local commercial banks still don't like doing deals under like a half million dollars, right? It's yeah. just not worth their time and energy. Sure. And so what you find a lot of times in those smaller class deals, you don't have as much competition. And you also have a typically like a mom and pop owner that uh, probably has used that mobile home park for their source of income for many, many years and is used to that income. And a lot of times you can find uh, a way to structure an owner finance deal. Yeah. We, I mean, we've bought many parks that way to where we've gone in and put you know, 10% down or 15% down on a park and uh, got the owner to carry back. It worked for him and it helped him mitigate some capital gains exposure and uh, works for the buyer as well, let you get in with much less of a downstroke and, and enter into the business. And so that's a very feasible way to get into this business or even any other business, right? Any sure. other type of real estate. Um, yeah. And so that if I were new and I had limited capital available to me, you know, if I only had a you know, a few hundred thousand dollars. And I truly wanted to, if I, if I knew that I wanted to learn the, the active side of the business, like I wanted to own the park. I didn't just want to be a passive investor with somebody. I wanted to own the park and I wanted to build a business out of it. That's exactly what I would do. I look at smaller parks and good markets and find those mom and pop owners that are aging out of that asset. Lots of them out there and, um, and try to strike a, you know, a good solid win-win owner finance deal with, you know, 10 or 15% down something that's very manageable as far as, you know, maybe a hundred thousand dollars or so of downstroke and get into a solid investment that's going to you know, produce cash flow and hopefully help you build some equity over time as well. Yeah. You mentioned your, your podcast. Uh, I was listening in preparation for this, just trying to understand your model a little better. And I was listening to your mobile home park investing podcast and it was interesting. I was listening to the seller objections uh, episode. The seller mm-hmm. objections for, for a mobile home park purchase are not that dissimilar to any other kind of real estate. I was listening to him saying, these are the objections that we have to overcome a lot of times when we're buying a single family home. So you know, if you're out there and you're an investor and you're buying single family homes and you're like, oh my God, it's a whole different, it's a totally different, I mean, it is different, but some of the objections and, and some of the skills that you may already be using in your own business can sometimes uh, apply e- even in this business, which I thought was 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 really interesting. I mean, even right down to the like you just mentioned, the capital gains. Like, what what about mm-hmm. the tax implication of? It's a smaller it's a smaller uh, sum of money, but it's still we get the same things. And and sometimes um, owner finance just makes sense because that just they want they need that income. They don't necessarily mm-hmm. care about having hundred thousand dollars dumped in their lap. They need the fifteen hundred dollars a month or whatever it is, right? They That's need that, that income. So when I assume these these parks, you don't live in all the states that you have them in 13 different states, I think you said. So management becomes a thing. Mm-hmm. How how dissimilar is that to like having a manager at an apartment complex or you know any other type of management? Is it similar? I assume they're on site and that kind of thing, but how does that work for yeah, the manager? Yeah, that, that, that's a great question. So we are based in Florida. We only own one community in the state of Florida, which is kind of ironic, but because there's, I think Florida is the second most populated state as far as mobile home parks are concerned. But, that's funny. Um, <laughs> yeah. So our central locations are here, not central, but our, our corporate locations here. And you know, each one of our communities uh, in each one of these different markets, each community had its own on-site uh, community manager. That person handles the day-to-day. They handle the collections. They they scan checks for us. They have a whole you know office set up. There. Either we have a standalone office that they work out of, or sometimes in some of our smaller communities, they just literally it's in their home office and uh, they have a check scanner. They collect rents. They hand out late notices. Uh, um, if it's a state where you know we can have our manager represent us in court, they'll go to court for eviction. Some states don't allow that. We have to have an attorney do it, but okay. they kind of handle the day to day. Then we have a district manager that's based here in Florida that basically is their direct report to, and uh, that district manager also travels around and you know visits each one of these communities on a regular basis. And so that's it. And it's uh, it's not too complicated of a, of an infrastructure. Really, the most complicated factor of of having these things far away. There's really two times where it becomes a little bit of a pain in the butt. It's when we first acquire property, and if it's a turnaround or a value add type property, right? You, you 
spend a lot more time there as you're stabilizing that asset. And so that becomes somewhat cumbersome, especially if you're doing more than one project at a time, just being able to get there back and forth, what have you. And then the other time that becomes a little bit of a challenge being so far away from our assets is when we have to actually re- you know, replace a manager and let someone go um, and actually try to hire somebody and train somebody and have a seamless transition. That yeah. creates a little bit of a challenge as well, because we can't necessarily just step in and be there for like a couple of weeks while we find a new manager. We've got right. to figure out ahead of time. So that makes sense. So it sounds like you, you, you try to keep the existing management in place if that if that's an option. Yes, ab- absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I know with, with single family rentals, uh, a lot of times, especially if you're using property managers, th- there's a little bit of a, a critical mass, right? And it, it can be it can vary depend on who you're talking to, but having one rental is not ideal, right? Because if you have a vacancy, you have 100% vacancy at that point. Mm-hmm. Is there, and again, with rentals, it really depends on your market and that kind of thing, but is there a, a general critical mass when it comes to mobile home parks, whether it be the number of total units or the number of parks? Like, Is one mobile home park with 30, with 30 lots, is that enough to sustain a business or are you kind of not really in an ideal situation there? Well, it depends on how you define a business. I mean, like I said, the, the first park we bought was 34 lots in size. We bought it back in 2012. It was a distressed asset, great market, but very distressed. And so we picked it up for super cheap. And uh, and it was just it was just me, right? Well, it was me and I had an, one active partner, not like a passive partner, but just two of us kind of turning around this asset uh, um, and managing the day-to-day. It didn't, didn't really take much to manage the day-to-day. We had a, an on-site manager there, but there wasn't really much to be done once we got it stabilized. Okay. And that, that property there, I mean, again, this is 2012 going into 2013. I mean, lots of distress out there. You couldn't buy that park today for what we paid for it. But um, that park, once we got it stabilized, basically after debt service, after all expenses, after everything, would net us about $110,000 a year. We we only had, we paid two hundred and five dollars for it and we put wow. about another 130000 into it of renovations. And so, that would be a business for a lot of people. I mean, that would be a sustainable business for most people, depending what you know what lifestyle goals they had, right? And so, as far as uh, uh, you know, and, and that would like that that community provided enough revenue and income to pay that on-site manager to pay everything, right? It kind of you can even hire some addition if you wanted. If you didn't want to be the person that that manager called, you could probably hire someone else for how much money that uh, that right. community produced. That's an anomaly. So I don't want to act as though like that's the norm, right? Yeah. Nowadays, these parks are a little bit pricier, and so. You know how we look at a, or how we used to really look at a park originally um, before we had more you know, corporate infrastructure, right? Because there's a certain period of time to where it was like myself and a partner trying to do everything, yeah. and then you only have so much bandwidth. Sure. But we didn't have enough parks to justify how, you know, being able to hire additional staff, right? And so it's a really weird transition there yeah. of, gosh, like we need more people, but we can't afford more people, <laughs> yeah. right? And like there's yeah. this, this, and where we found that that scale to be was about like truly about a thousand units, so where we could really hire who we really needed. And even today we've got, we're double that size and there's still probably a few more staff that we could hire, maybe not need today, but I always like to be proactive with my hiring that we, you know, but, but we need probably like another thousand lots to really justify those hires. Right. And so, um, but I I think that's, see, here's the thing in in the mobile home park space, we're not outsourcing the property management. um, And so we have our own property management team. It's kind of one of the the downsides of the mobile home park industry. Pretty much any other asset class, multifamily, shopping centers, offices, what have you. 
there's professional firms all across the country that you can outsource to. Right. And that will probably do a better job, especially if you're getting started. They'll probably do a better job of managing that asset than what you probably could. And they right. also have the infrastructure in place, right? Yeah. They've, they've got all the pieces of the puzzle that you would ultimately have to build and spend money building. In the mobile home park space, that just doesn't really exist. There's a few third-party management companies, but nothing nothing that you could ever rely on building a business from. Okay. Um, and so... No, we're at the point where we're building two businesses simultaneously. So we can't go too far with the property management until we go far enough with the with the actual physical assets themselves, right? Yeah. Knowing that we have enough revenue to justify yep. hiring another staff member, hiring that additional staff member, hiring us. Oh, okay, now we're too many. Now we got to buy more parks, right? And so it's yeah. like this teetering teetering action going. Yep, totally. Um, real quick, I'm just curious: Do lot rents? kind of follow the ups and downs of like single family home rent rates? Do rent rates fluctuate with the economy or do they stay pretty constant? Yeah, they're, they're constant. I, I I mean, historical trends will show that they've, once they go to a certain point, I mean, that becomes a new basis. I've, I've okay. never seen a park where the lot rents have gone down. Um, okay. Okay. That- and, 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 and the insulation, fa- the insulator there is that most of the time they own their home, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's you know, number one, that lot rent is probably a third of what the cheapest rent they would ever find in an apartment in the same market, right? Yep. I mean, if, it, if they're living in a three-bedroom mobile home, they're paying $300 a month of lot rent. For them to go find a three-bedroom apartment or a single-family home, they'd probably at minimum spend $900 a month, yeah. right? Yeah. And so um, uh, it's a very easy nut for them to crack on a monthly basis in comparison to that of an apartment. In addition to that, they own the home. And so I don't want I don't want to use the word leverage, but there, there's not a ton of leverage that a tenant would have in saying that, you know, we need to lower our rent like it's too yeah. much. You know, like they own their home and, you know, they have the option of moving it, but it's real expensive to move it. And so, yeah, it just kind of works itself out and that becomes a new basis and time moves on. OK. Do you guys speaking of moving out, how frequent is that or how how um, how uh, how often does that kind of thing happen? And then do you move? Like I would imagine having an empty lot is obviously no good. It's a vacancy of, of sorts. That's correct. Do, do you solicit people to to move there or do you put uh would you put something in a in a blank spot just to have something that you can rent or how does that work when you have blank uh, lot rent or lots? Yeah, that that's a great question. Yeah, if if we buy a park and it's got an empty lot on it, or if maybe we bought it or we, we own it and someone moved their home out, which doesn't happen often at all. Um either way we got an empty lot there that has no revenue coming in. And so we want revenue coming in. So we'll solicit, we'll put ads out. We'll even pay for someone's move, right? So if they live in another community in the area, uh, we'll pay for their move, which is pretty substantial. Normally to do the lot prep and to, you know, depending on the state, but generally speaking, to do the lot prep and to move the home and get it set back up, you know, for a typical single wide home, you're talking probably upwards of like eight or $9,000. Okay. And so we'll move it, you know, we'll pay for the move and then we'll require that they stay for a number of years, right? Um mm-hmm. Any lot that we occupy, on average, uh, you know, the average lot rent across the country is about three fifty a month. And so, just using an average cap rate, any home that we bring in and actually get that individual paying lot rent adds about a thirty thirty five thousand dollars of total value to that community. Okay, um, just from a capitalized perspective. And so, our objective is to fill in those lots. And so, either we'll incentivize someone to move their home in, which again, that doesn't happen all that often. More the more likely scenario is either we go out in the marketplace somewhere, we go buy a used, nice mobile home, yep. and we buy it outright and we move it in, or we just bring a new home in. Gotcha. And uh, and then we turn around and sell it to a you know a new resident. Okay. You mentioned that when you bought I, I don't the one uh, the the smaller the first one you bought I believe you said you put one hundred ten thousand dollars of renovation into it. What does that mean for a mobile home park? I know what it means for yeah. single family, but what does that mean for a park? 
Yeah, so that park was a little different when we bought it. Every mobile home in there, there was a 34 space park. There were, I believe, 29 homes that that uh, that were in there when we purchased it. It was basically a vacant park. It had been in receivership for a couple of years. But the park owned all those homes, which is not our business model today. It's very different. So the renovations were basically getting those homes happening oh, okay. again and okay. going, going through and renovating those homes. But in a normal sense, so for today's standards, uh, we still have typical cap, capital improvement budgets that we set aside when we buy a new park. And a lot of it comes into play of uh, infrastructure, so roads. Uh, you know, repaving roads or fixing roads, uh, redoing water lines and sewer lines, right. installing street lights, uh, installing an office if there's not one there, um, you know, resurfacing a pool if there's a, you know, a community area with a pool present, uh, putting a, a playground in, what have you. So that's that's typically where the money goes okay. as far as uh, capital expenditures are concerned uh, when we're buying an asset. Uh, and then if, if, if that asset's actually coming with a few mobile homes, we'll also set aside a budget to renovate those mobile homes, uh, assuming that they're vacant when we by that community. Okay, real quick, when you renovate a mobile home, what's mm-hmm. the biggest difference from renovating a single family home? Are there significant like contractors need to know or can you buy the materials at Home Depot? Is everything pretty much available that would be on a normal home? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's some, you know, back nowadays, yes. I mean, most of the, the windows that are used are pretty standard in size. The doors that are used are standard in size. Okay. Um, some of the older mobile homes, things that were built back in like the 90, you know, 80s, 90s and prior to that, um, they use like some oddball size windows or oddball yeah. size doors. And, you know, but a lot, a lot of times you could still modify it to, to make it work. I mean, all of our contractors, they, you know, we, we order items from Home Depot or Lowe's. I mean, that's where we shop most of the time for items. There's a few, like if we have to replace a bathtub, again, older homes, they might have used like an odd size bathtub where we have to get from a mobile home supplier. But yeah. there's multiple nationwide mobile home suppliers that sell parts um, okay. that will get those oddball things from. But for the most part, Anyone that has zero handyman experience and knows basic electrical, plumbing, and carpentry can work on a mobile home. Okay, gotcha. Well, listen, I've taken up a lot of your time. I really appreciate it. We didn't even dive into all the tons of experience you have in other industries and things like that, which I thought was very, very interesting. Some of the stuff you've done has been just remarkable for as young of a guy you are. But I do appreciate your time, and and I'll I'll wrap it up here. But before we do, uh, we mentioned your podcast. You have the Real Estate Investing for Cashflow podcast and the Mobile Home Park Investing podcast. Uh, I believe you have some education that you offer in these realms. Anything else that that you want to direct people toward, or something people should know about you, or or what you offer? No, I mean those those two podcasts. You know, surely, if you want to get uh, you know started in the mobile home park space, we've got you know 112 or 13 episodes. You know, so hours upon hours of free information. A lot of the earlier episodes we did on that show uh, were very granular in nature. We went into case studies on deals and and really tore through you know deals that didn't work, deals that did work, you know what have you. And so. I think that if anyone, as I mentioned, the kind of elevator pitch that you, you know, the question that you asked, you know, if they want to get started, they even have an interest and they want to know this might be a fit for them, go listen to a number of those episodes and, um, and you'll get a good indicator of, you know, what this niche is all about and if it could be a good fit for you. But other than that, my, my personal website, kevinbup.com, there's links to everything else that I've got going on on that, that website. So you can go find all my podcasts and our company website and things of that nature there. Cool. And we'll, we'll put all those links in the show notes of this show so that everyone can find it easily. If you go to juststartrealestate.com, uh, we can find the, uh, you can find the show notes to everything we talked about today. 
Uh, Kevin, man, I appreciate your time. Uh, I really do. Uh, I know we're all busy and it's a crazy time that we're living in right now with uh, with the pandemic. But uh, I think the the people that are 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 going to survive or get through this, and, and frankly, everyone can. It's not mm-hmm. we're not it's not that dire. But uh, the people who really figure out how to get through this, and and in fact, a lot of times I think get a little bit smarter and leaner and stronger and better, and their companies will come out of this better. And uh, if that's you, and, and if, and if uh, mobile home investing is something you're interested in or something you might be interested in, I highly suggest you check out his podcast and uh, and dive into that whole world. Kevin, thanks, man, for doing this. I really appreciate it. Mike, thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun. All right. Thanks, man. Bye-bye. All right, guys. Hopefully you enjoyed that interview. It was a lot of fun talking to Kevin. Uh, smart guy. He's been around for a long time. He's not that old of a guy, but he has done a lot. He's been in this game since he was 19, and he's seen a lot of different things, and he gravitates toward that commercial, the uh, the mobile home park uh, purchases. And, and I think it's really cool to talk to someone who's been in the industry a long time uh, and has gone a completely different path than what I've gone. I always find those folks interesting because I always love to dig in and get into their brain and figure out why they did what they did, why they're interested in that kind of investing. And I think we got a good taste of that from Kevin today. So uh, again, I thought he was a lot of fun to have on. Hopefully you guys agree that this was something that was interesting to you. Even if you don't end up investing in mobile home parks, that's fine. But to kind of diversify your thinking, to give you exposure to other types of investing that you may not have considered is exactly why I had Kevin on. So I had a good time with him. Hope you guys enjoyed it. And until next time, Get out there and just start. All right, guys. See you next time. Have a good day. Okay, good. You're still here. You know if you hang around long enough on my podcast and listen all the way to the end, sometimes I share things with you that you just won't hear anywhere else. So I want to talk to you about the seven-figure flipping vault. Guys, this is a video library filled with everything you need to know about building a house flipping or wholesaling business. And if you already have a house flipping and wholesaling business and you think you don't need what's in this vault, let me tell you, think again. I'm going to read you some of the titles of the videos that you get inside this vault. How to set your goals, right? Goal setting and planning. How to measure your results. How to find motivated sellers in your market. Are you kidding me? That's like probably the number one thing I get asked by all real estate investors. How do I find motivated sellers? We have a video that covers that from A to Z. How to pick a market. How to know if your market that you're in is a good market for you to be in. Is it good for you as a wholesaler? Is it good for you as a flipper? There are ways, there are things that you can do to find out if you're in the right market. How to set up a phone system to track calls and manage leads. Uh, What kind of CRM should you be using? when you talk to the homeowner, when you're meeting with sellers, getting that contract signed, how do you do that? What contracts and forms do you need? Do you need the contracts and forms? Well, they're in there, they're available to you. So that's a lot of the flipping stuff with wholesalers, uh, finding those cash buyers. How are you finding buyers that are gonna buy the deals that you're finding when you're in the home talking to the seller? 16 hacks to build and grow your buyers list. How to pick a good market. Again, just like a house flipper, you need to know if you're in a good market as a as a wholesaler. And the videos inside of this vault are going to give you everything. Deal analysis, finding the ARV, um, 
as-is value and using the tools that it takes to dial those numbers in just right. Estimating the repair of, uh, or the cost of repairs when you're doing a flip, right? How do you estimate those things? How do you know? And then on top of that, when you buy this vault, when you get in there, you get a whole series on marketing. How to use ListSource to pull motivated seller lists. How to skip trace the information if you need to skip trace it and get phone numbers and things like that. How to find deals without spending money. Free strategies to find motivated sellers. And then there's another video, nine low-cost leads, nine low-cost lead source generators. And then Bandit Signs, uh, we talk about a little bit. If that's something that works, driving for dollars, ringless voicemail, cold calling. I mean, the list goes on and on of all the ways that we show you how to market and get great deals. And if that's not enough, there's another whole series that comes with this as well about sales and negotiation. Probably the number one difficulty that people have in their business is sales and negotiation. And we walk through it in a multi-series of videos exactly how to negotiate with sellers, exactly how to negotiate with buyers. What's it look like behind the scenes of a sales meeting with our team? What do we what do we tell our salespeople when they're going out on the road to, to get those deals? Like what does that behind the scenes conversation look like? You're gonna see all of that. Guys, there are so many videos that cover every aspect of real estate investing from a wholesaler and a flipper's perspective. If I had these videos, I could have shortcut years and years off of my success track. And I've been able to be very successful, but I guarantee I wasted four or five years just trying to figure it out. You don't have to figure it out anymore. There are solutions out there, and this is one. How do you find me might be asking? Great question. If you go to juststartrealestate.com forward slash vault, that's juststartrealestate.com forward slash vault. It'll take you right to it. You can check out the videos. You can see what's all offered there. Guys, this is a tremendous opportunity for you to really turbocharge your business. And we're in kind of a tough time right now for real estate. House prices are, are kind of high all over the place. We have the coronavirus. It's harder and harder to get things done. You need something to help you get over this hump. And this is it, in my opinion. So go check it out. Juststartrealestate.com forward slash vault. You'll be glad you did.